Well, we, of course, are met this afternoon uh, with part of the purpose being we pray together. And we take a time as a congregation to seek the face of God. And so I, I turned to this portion this week with that in mind, thinking to myself, well, should I preach on this or should I come to a different portion of the Word of God to bring to your attention prior to prayer this afternoon? But as I really began to dig into these verses, I think it became clear to me there was some very helpful instruction that I think will help us as we come to pray in a few moments' time. Clearly, the subject here is of David being reinstalled as king. Again, there is this issue. What is the word of the king? Is the king not going to come back? Verse number 10. And so what you see in the subsequent verses is you see David exercising his leadership. We see the nature of the kingdom life. Yes, the nature of the kingdom life in the setting of sin. The sin of Zeba, the sin of Shimei. And we see the king interacting with people as he comes back into the kingdom. One of the things we've seen in this entire series of studies in the life and times of David is that we see in David's kingdom the shadows of the kingdom of God in all ages. I suppose that's the principle you've got, to, you've got to keep in your mind. Like in every type, the type is not the anti-type. What that means is we see shadows of Christ, but Christ is better than the shadows. He is more perfect, more full, of course, infinitely more full than the types. And so it is with the kingdom. You see, the kingdom in its fullness after Christ's second coming. As Jerusalem comes down from above, we see the kingdom in all of its pristine glory. And so, prior to that, we see the kingdom in the New Testament church. Still marked with sin and not purity at this particular time. And prior to the church, we see kingdom illustrated in the Old Testament. In various ways, but often clearly in the life and times and the ministry of David as king. As David is a type of the ultimate king, Christ, so the kingdom of David provides us with typical significance of the church and that will ultimately be true in the kingdom to come. And so we're seeing this line of of thought. And so when you see Christ, or we see David, sorry, exerting his authority as king, you should look to see, well, is this something we should think about regarding the kingdom today? So the dynamic... The dynamic exists in these verses between the will of the king and the attitudes and the actions of his subjects. How does the king interact with Shimei? How does the king interact with Abishai? We we see some degree of, of conflict between the subjects and the king himself. And in examining these verses, I think we can then draw out lessons. Lessons that should direct our season of prayer. After all, what are we here for? We're here to pray about the matters of the kingdom. We're here to pray for those things that relate to the church here in this world at this time. And so if you look at your outline again, you'll see just, I have two very, very simple statements to consider uh, today. Uh, The first statement is this, the king's objective is unity, but tensions remain. Here again, we're certainly seeing things that I think will help us pray over matters of the kingdom. The king's objective here undoubtedly 
is to unify the kingdom again. There's been an insurrection. There's been division. Part of the kingdom has gone after Absalom. Others have come with David. They've won the battle. And now the king's desire and purpose is to reunify the kingdom under his reign. Bit of the background here. You see in verse number 9, there is strife throughout all the tribes of Israel. They, they find themselves, and they're in a spin. Put it that way. David, what a mighty king he was. He saved us so many times. David has slain his ten thousands. Absalom, though, well, he exerted power for a season. And you see that there, verse number eight, 10. And Absalom, whom we anointed over us. So we acknowledge David, but we also, we kind of put our flag up in Absalom's camp. Now what do we do next? What's going to happen next? Verse number 10. Why speak ye not a word of bringing the king back? And there's, there's conflict in the kingdom. There's tension. There's the David party and the Absalom party. And well, what's going to happen to the kingdom next? And the application is very, very simple. The kingdom will not go forward unless there is unity. And so David begins to really plan a scheme to bring about unity. And you get verse number 11. David says to Zadok and Abiathar, Tell the elders of Judah, not all of Israel. David focuses attention initially, depending on the support of his brothers, his kinsmen, according to the flesh, in the tribe of Judah. And he says to them, what are you waiting for? That's basically what he says. You know, what, what's happening here? You're my bone, bone of my bone, out of my flesh, verse number 12. Wherefore then, are you the last to bring back the king? He's, he's provoking them to action. It's a rhetorical question that is intended to bring about a rebuke. Judah, you should be at the very forefront of my side. And he persuades them. But as he persuades them, he also does something that initially seemed to be strange. Verse number 13. And say ye to Amasa, Art not thou born of my... Art thou, sorry. Art not thou of my bone and of my flesh? He's making the point that there are wider relationships, not just with Judah, but the wider people of God. Amasa was the general under Absalom. David now appoints Amasa in the place of Joab to rule his army, thereby indicating that those who once were loyal to Absalom need not fear their lives. Surely if you're going to kill Absalom's army, you're going to start with Amasa. But rather than putting Amasa to death, he promotes Amasa to the governor, to the, to the general over the, over the host, captain of the host. So my point is very simple. David's aim is to promote this unity amongst the people. And so it says in verse number 14, his success, and he bowed the heart of all the men of Judah, even as the heart of one man. So there's this desire to bring about unity through Judah and then also by appointing Amasa. But whilst the king's objective clearly is unity, there are tensions that remain. Again, verse number 9, all the people were at strife. But when you turn to the end of the chapter, go to, cha to the end of the chapter, verse 40. Uh, verse, yeah, 40. Then the king went on to Gilgal, and Chimham went on with him, and all the people of Judah conducted the king, and also half the people of Israel. 
And behold, all the men of Israel came to the king and said to the king, Why have our brethren the men of Judah stolen thee away? And had brought the king and his household and all David's men with him over Jordan. And they, they give the answer. And there's a response. The king's near of kin to us. We are doing what is natural. We're supporting, again, our kinsman. And the men of Israel, they answer back. Verse 43. But we've ten parts in the king. We've ten tribes. You've only Judah. We've all of this part of the king. And we have a right to David more than you do. But verse number 43 ends, the words of the men of Judah were fiercer than the words of the men of Israel. And so the king is aiming at unity, but tensions remain. And those tensions will eventually come in two kings' time to divide the kingdoms. But the king's objective is still unity. I don't think you need me to tell you that Christ's objective for his kingdom is unity. You think of the words of John chapter 13, the new commandment, that ye love one another as I have loved you. His prayer in John 17, that they all may be one as thy Father art in me and I in thee, that they also may be one in us. The king's objective in the kingdom is unity in his church. So we're encouraged, you're, again, the, 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 with the desire and the recognition that there is a need to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Ephesians chapter 4. There's a recognition in Philippians that we don't exalt ourselves, but rather we seek to live in humility and unity. But yet tensions remain. Philippians chapter 4. There's two women, Eudias and Syntyche, and they're at war in the church. So the objective and the aim of Christ and His church is unity, but the tensions remain. There's Acts chapter 6, discussion and debate regarding the widows. And so Christ's will for his church will ultimately realize in the kingdom to come. And in the meantime, we live in this tension between the will of the Savior, the King, and the reality of kingdom living. One pastor wrote this. Most pastors get more than a taste of this point. I'm not self-serving here. This is what I read this week, and I thought it was interesting. How often, on any given week, I... This is this man's writing, okay? This is not my experience. I have to say this honestly. He says this. How often, on any given week, I used to marvel that a congregation ever survived between petty bickering and flagrant sins, between hurt feelings and asinine stubbornness. You know I wouldn't have written that between trivial priorities and tragic apathies. My saying, essence, is that the ongoing life of any church is marked by the struggling towards unity. Christ's will is for unity, but the church struggles to see such. This is the Lord's kingdom. And I want to ask this afternoon, let's make it a focus of our prayers. For unity amongst the brethren in this congregation, that God will keep it and preserve it and promote it and enhance it, that though we may have different opinions on various things, that we realize that we're all on the same side serving Christ Jesus, and that we pray for that.
But beyond that, please pray for this in our wider presbytery. You know, presbyteries are made up of men with many, many strong opinions. It's almost impossible to be a pastor without being opinionated. And what I mean by that is not necessarily negatively, but you preach things with conviction and you hold convictions. And so when you bring people together in a wider denomination and a presbytery, you've all of these opinions, and we don't all see all the same things the same way. And yet there is the need to pursue unity, whilst there may still be things with which you may differ the one from the other. And I think it's important when you think of these kingdom principles, we pray over these matters, that there is unity and charity in the context of diversity. This man continues this way. Yet it seemed, and this is very encouraging, yet it seemed that the fragmenting tendencies of human folly were always overcome by the glue of divine grace. Did you hear that? What he's saying is, in his experience, you would come to church on the Lord's Day. He says, on any given week, there be this petty bickering and asinine stubbornness, and you would come to church in any week, and you'd imagine that the people of God are determined to pull themselves apart and to divide and to destroy. And yet every week he would come to this realization that the fragmenting tendencies of human folly were always overcome by the glue of divine grace. Surely Jesus is building his church or it would have vanished long ago. If it was down to us, destruction. But in God's grace, unity and preservation. And I'm moving forward in the work of God. He says this, And just as surely the kingdom is the Lord's, or else it would have been swept away in the sewage line of history before David's greater son ever appeared in the flesh. The tensions in 2 Samuel 19 are overcome because God has a purpose for Solomon to come to the throne and for the temple to be built and for the establishment of worship that honors Christ ultimately to the coming of Christ as the son of David. Praise God. The grace of God overcomes our tendencies to pull each other apart doesn't excuse our human fragmentary spirit, but it certainly gives us encouragement, doesn't it? Secondly, the king's impulse is mercy, but hardness remains. What about Shimei? Well, if you think back to chapter 16, we find Shimei cursing David and throwing stones. Not a minor teenage tantrum but a profound display of rebellion against the authority of the king, the anointed king, as Shimei refers to David in verse number 21. When you come to think about Shimei, there's a few things you've got to do. First of all, we've got to try to discern the heart. Verse 18 and following, we find Shimei falling down before the king. And we, we read of him in verse number 19, Let not my Lord impute iniquity unto me. Verse 20, for thy servant doth know that I have sinned. And so you find this display of a man pleading for mercy, coming before the king. But the question is, is he the real deal? 
Is this genuine repentance or some sort of spurious regret at choosing the wrong side in the battle? I picked wrong, David. It's about time that I do all I can to get back on David's side. Don't miss, by the way, verse number 17. Now, there were a thousand men of Benjamin with him in different ways in which that's interpreted. But the general thought is, I think the most right thought, is that what he has done is proving his loyalty to David by mustering men with him. He's got a company and said, look, David, the Benjamites, not part of Judah, remember Judah have said, we'll take you as king. And now the unity is being pursued in the nations or the tribes. Benjamin, they're going to bring a thousand men under Shimei's authority. And he's saying, look, I'm loyal to you now. I can prove it. Look behind me. Maybe. There are different views. Undoubtedly, what we see here is a confession of sin. One, you see submission to the king, his authority. You find an admission he deserves to die. You see so many things that are certainly commendable and noteworthy. But not everybody takes Shimei at face value. Matthew Henry and others say words, this effect, these are Henry's words, if David had been defeated... No doubt Shimei would have continued to trample upon him and have gloried in what he had done. But now that he sees him coming home in triumph and returning to his throne, he thinks it is interest to make his peace with him. So he's simply saying, well, this is just a matter of convenience. David's won the, the victory. Now it's time for me to come along David's side. I'm really not so sure of that. Pink says this. What pleasant surprises we sometimes have amid life's disappointments. This is the last man of all who might have been expected to be among those who came to welcome the king. For Shimei was the one who reviled and cursed him on the outward journey. The commentators attribute Shimei's friendly advances on this occasion to nothing more than carnal prudence or an instinct of self-preservation. But this, we think, is quite a mistake. He seems to be in no danger for his life. For the next verse informs us that there are a thousand men of Benjamin with him. No, in the light of verse 14, we believe this is another instance of God making his enemies to be at peace with him. When a man's ways please the Lord. So, there are these two lines. Is he genuine or is he a fraud and a pretense? I think what we can say is that David appears to take it at face value. After all, can you fault Shimei for doing what's right at this time? The poor guy can't win. If he continues with rebellion, he's a rebel against David. If he does this, we judge him as a fraud. How do you feel when someone rebels against the Lord's word and they go in like the prodigal to a far country and they then come to their senses in the far country? You're only doing it because you're eating pig's food. This is not sincere. You're just hungry. You've got to come back. 
Isn't that how we respond to someone who's rebelled and they get to a point in their life where they're miserable and at the end of themselves and they, they, they come and they confess their sin and they seek the Lord? Ah, it's only convenient for you now. Isn't that our heart sometimes? But what else do they do? If they're at the end of themselves, what would you tell them to do? Repent and seek the Lord. That's what you've got to do. You've got to come back to Christ. So, Shimei, he's doing the right thing here. He's confessing his sin. He's admitting his desert desert of punishment. And he's claiming his allegiance to Christ Jesus. And yet, in it all, whilst David seemed to take him at face value, he's still somewhat suspicious. When you go to 1 Kings chapter 2, and you come to David giving instruction to Solomon regarding the kingdom, he again happens to mention this guy. Verse 8 of 1 Kings chapter 2, And behold, thou hast with thee Shimei the son of Gera, a Benjamin of Bajorin, which cursed me with a grievous curse in the day when I went down to Mahanim. But he came down to meet me at Jordan, and I swear to him by the Lord, saying, I will not put thee to death with the sword. Now therefore hold him not guiltless. For thou art a wise man, and knowest what they ought to do with him, but his forehead bring down to the grave with blood. How does that sit? Well, not immediately with the conclusion that he's definitely in error here. The idea of him being a guiltless man, thou therefore hold him not guiltless, is one in recognition of his past sin, but also I can't be certain about him. I'm not sure. And so does Solomon do? He doesn't kill him. He places him under a test. He holds him in Jerusalem and he's told, I remember Jerusalem, he holds him somewhere and he does something to, to ensure that he does follow in line. Shimei breaks that and he loses his life in that regard. But the issue, I think, is David seems to my mind to take him at face value in 2 Samuel 19, but yet with this unease. And isn't that exactly how we tend to feel with those who rebel against Christ and then come back to the Lord? We're just not quite sure. And so, believer, let me encourage you in light of this not to be naive regarding someone's public profession of faith. It is not inherently wrong to watch and to wait and to see. Forgiveness ought to be immediate. But trust takes time. And so the right Christian response, if someone has sinned against you, is yes, you must forgive them seven times seventy. But there is in the Bible, again, evidence of the necessity of waiting for trust to be reestablished. And if you're unsaved today, I say very simply, if you've cursed Christ, confess your sin and seek him for pardon. If you've rebelled against the Lord and you've shaken your fists in Christ's face and you've thrown stones at him metaphorically and cursed him, then what must you do? You must absolutely turn to him, fall before him and seek pardon for your sins. And don't let the thought of people questioning your sincerity hold you back. Can that happen? You're unconverted today and you think to yourself, if I call upon the Lord and fall upon the Lord, they're going to doubt me and suggest you're not sincere. 
Do what's right and let the people deal with their own hearts. Your duty is to confess your sin and to call upon Christ Jesus. Your only option, if you sinned, is to repent in mercy. And so there is this desire, this need to discern the heart. Again, Pink makes the point. Let us see in this instant a typical picture of the penitent sinner casting himself upon the mercy of David's greater Son and Lord. This is exactly what takes place at genuine conversion. The wicked forsake his way. But there is also in this portion, there is the desire for retribution. Verse 21, Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, answered and said, Shall not Shimei put to death for this, because he cursed the Lord's anointed? By the way, Abishai wanted the same thing in chapter 16. He hasn't changed his tune. He didn't like the fact he didn't get to do it the first time, and now, well, it's about time. You're now king again. Understandable, he has a concern for public justice, unlikely a concern for kingdom stability. But David declares mercy. Verse 22. What have I to do with you, ye sons of Zeruiah, that ye should this day be adversaries unto me? Do I not know this day I'm king over Israel? Therefore the king said unto Shimei, Thou shalt not die. Some have the idea in mind here, and I think it's part of it. David has received mercy, therefore he shows mercy. He's been forgiven, therefore he forgives. But he tells us particularly, note the repetition of this idea of this day. Shall there any man be put to death this day in Israel? For do I not know that I am this day king over Israel? He knows he has authority to judge, but he has chosen mercy. He has the right as the king to show mercy and pardon. And in so doing, he demonstrates his authority as the king. Basically, today's not the day to kill traitors. Today's the day to show mercy. One idea is given that if David kills Shimei, the other traitors may fear for their lives and may not line up under David. And so in showing mercy, again, he promotes the unity desire that he has. Maybe. But remember again, David's kingdom is given to teach us about the kingdom of Christ. He is king. Many of you will have thought about the striking similarities here between this and the event in Luke chapter 9. Turn across there, please, and this will finish for today. Luke chapter 9. And there are striking similarities between the actions of David here and the actions of the Savior. Luke 9, verse 51 and following. The Lord is heading to Jerusalem. And as he goes, he goes through a village of the Samaritans. But verse 53 says, They did not receive him, because his face was as though he would go to Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, wilt thou that we command fire to come down from heaven and consume them even as Elias did? Again, there are two men. Back in Second Samuel, there are the sons of Zeruiah, the Abishai and Joab as well. They're there together in this. 
And here you have these two sons of thunder. Verse 55. He turned and rebuked them and said, Ye know not what manner of spirit ye are. And then he gives the reason. For the Son of Man is not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. The Lord Jesus Christ will come and judge and condemn one day, but not today. Shimei will feel judgment one day, but not today. This is a day when the king is triumphant and he's showing his authority and mercy. You see, our first thought towards the ungodly around us should be a desire for King Jesus to show mercy. Fire from heaven will fall upon the unrepentant. But now is the day of salvation. Now is the day when Christ delights to show mercy. And so he tells us, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. And today, this afternoon, Pray for them that despitefully use you. That though they hate your Christ, Christ's impulse is to show mercy at this point, waiting judgment that is to come. We know from the word of God that Christ's will for his church today is a spread of the gospel. An offer of mercy to the whosoever. So do we in our hearts Agree with this assignment? Are we in agreement with the assignment of our king? Or would we rather, you put somebody's name in here, would you rather so-and-so was cast into hell? Would that be a better outcome right now in your heart? That you can think of someone, a sworn enemy of the gospel, and your impulse is fire from heaven, God, fire from heaven. When Christ's impulse is to show mercy. We do not know the elect. We do not know the reprobate. We have no idea about an individual's final destination. But Christ receiveth sinful men. And our desire must also be that God show mercy to those who are determined. And so rather than saying so and so should be cast into hell, would it not be better that they hear the words of Christ in the words of David, thou shalt not die? Those are the words, of course, that David spoke to Abishai. Don't we want those words spoken to lost souls in our day? That Christ would say to them, thou shalt not die? Let me finish with pink again. He says this, But let us look again beyond David to that blessed one of whom he was so eminent a type. In what has just been before us, we are presented with a lovely picture of the gospel. The grand truth of the gospel is that Christ receiveth sinners. Yes, he not only spares, but welcomes his worst enemies and freely pardons them. Nevertheless, they must seek him. Surrender to his lordship, take their place before him in the dust of penitence, confessing their sins and casting themselves on his sovereign mercy. This is what Shimei did. He determined to make his peace with David, came to him and did obeisance before him 
and we read that the king said, Thou shalt not die. Let us pray today for the Lord to graciously show his mercy to the worst of sinners and the enemies of the gospel of Christ Jesus. The king's objective is unity in the kingdom, but tensions remain. The king's impulse is mercy, but hardness often remains in the hearts of his children. We have been forgiven. Let us seek for Christ to forgive others around us for the praise and glory of the gospel. Amen. Amen.